Before we get started with today's episode, I think I owe my listeners a little explanation. I've been pretty absent from social media over the last month or so, but especially over the last several weeks. And this episode is, oh, only about a month overdue. To start off, I want to say that, first and foremost, my number one responsibility in this life is as a wife and as a mother. And I take that responsibility very seriously. My family is not only my duty, but my joy in life. And what kind of person would I be to speak my opinion on a podcast about another mother's failure while not attending to my own? Second only to that is my career. There are certain populations out there who are unable to protect themselves from harm and other unlawful acts against them. I made a commitment about 11 years ago that I would do that for them, and I am dedicated to giving all that I've got to that undertaking. Now, independent of one another, both of those roles can be pretty demanding. They balance out for the most part, though. There's an ebb and flow to each of them, from ordinary but steady to the exciting but hectic. But then there are times in life when they just don't, and you just have to make it work. A high volume of cases competes with softball and parent-teacher meetings, school programs, annual checkups and flu shots, etc., times three. And it can all become overwhelming and completely exhausting. And there's just not enough time in the day or week or even the month in this instance to get it all done. But you have to get it all done. And then comes podcasting. Now, I haven't been podcasting for long, but I truly enjoy it. And I love that all of you enjoy it as well. But I never expected starting out the amount of time and work that goes into, for example, 10 minutes of a podcast episode. The researching, writing, the music, locating witnesses and conducting interviews, the narrating, the editing and overall production of one episode is a tedious, time-consuming process. So with that being said, my poor podcast has to take the backseat to my other, and I will proudly say more important, duties in this short life. So I can't promise a timely quality episode every 30 days, because I would probably break that promise over and over again. And I do not subscribe to the old adage that promises are made to be broken. But what I can promise is that I will never present you with anything but my best. My episodes may not always be timely, but they will always be quality. So forgive me, please. Now, the other big factor in this episode's delay was the interviews. You can probably tell from my work that one of my main goals of each episode is to tell a story, but not just any story. When someone takes the life of another person, they still have their voice. They still get to tell their story, whether it's through their attorneys or the media, or maybe they even write a book or do an interview along the way. But for the victim, their voice will never be heard again. They don't get to tell their story. So it's my goal to tell it for them and to make sure their voice isn't lost. There's no better way for me to do that than to find someone to be their voice in the telling of that story. There were several moments over the last month that I almost gave up on that and released the episode without. I got blown off and stood up and sometimes people just flat out turned me down. That's okay. It goes with the territory sometimes. But this was a little beyond that and was exceedingly frustrating. 
But I just couldn't do it. I couldn't release the episode without. Because this is another case where the perpetrator made sure they got to tell their story over and over again. But the victim never got to tell theirs. And I just couldn't get right with the idea that the perpetrator would end up basically getting to tell their side of the story again and would be getting the last word, essentially, again. So I kept pushing and I kept reaching out and it finally paid off because the two lovely ladies you will hear in today's episode agreed to participate and took the time out of their busy day during probably the only break they had between all of their many duties to be a voice for their friend and give their friend a chance to tell their story. To those two ladies, I know I thanked you before, but I just can't thank you enough for helping me to be a voice for the victim. And now, without further ado, on with the show. Hey, this is Ferdy Kameni from Delaware. The following podcast contains graphic descriptions of violence and is definitely not suitable for all listeners. In other words, don't say she didn't warn you. It's common knowledge that Texas is known as the friendship state. But do you know why? You probably think it's because everyone in Texas is so friendly. Well, we are. Most of us, that is. But that's actually not the origin of our state motto. Texas wasn't originally Texas at all. It came by its name through a long line of translations from one culture to another. Texas is the American translation of the Spanish word Tejas. And Tejas is the Spanish translation of the Caddo word Teixa, meaning friends or allies. You see, long before the Spanish began their exploration and colonization of Texas, the Caddo Indians, among others, had already come to Texas from the Mississippi Valley around 800 AD. The 1541 through 1543 Spanish Entrada, led by Hernando de Soto, and after he died by Luis de Moscoso, was the first European to permeate the interior of the southeastern U.S. Although there are writings of encounters with the Caddo's during this time, the earliest detailed descriptions of the Caddo come from later Spanish and French expeditions in the late 1600s. Both the Spanish and the French were struck by the highly organized and civilized society of the Caddo. There were two main branches of Caddo people in Texas, with the third branch being in what is now modern-day Louisiana. The Caddo Adacho lived in large villages along the Red River near the present-day Oklahoma-Arkansas border. But most of the early Spanish and French accounts of the Caddo Indians describe the second group, the Asinai people. The term Asinai, or its variations, literally means our own people. And the Asinai nation was made up of multiple tribes or bands who lived deep within the Piney Woods in more compact communities throughout the upper Natchez and Angelina River basins. They included the Anai, the Neche, the Nabadache, the Nakono, the Nabiti, the Anadarko, the Yona, and the Nakohodotsi, better known around these parts as the Nakadochi, when you throw in a little bit of that quick talk in East Texas twang. As they began to lay their claim to the land in the name of Spain, albeit while totally disregarding that these lands already belonged to the very people who called them friend, 
Spanish explorers and missionaries in the area would often just use the names of the local Native American tribes to mark rivers and other natural features. Although most of those names were translated into Spanish or simply lost in translation somewhere along the way, there are a number of locations and landmarks in the East Texas area that are still associated with the Indian origins of their names. The city and county of Nacogdoches, as you might guess, are aptly named after the Nacogdoches tribe of the Asinai Nation. The area was home to the primary village of the Nacogdoches and was one of the largest Asinai villages that existed. It remained a Caddo settlement until around 1719. But evidence of the settlement that has been collected in the area suggests they were there long before that, almost 10,000 years ago, in fact. But regardless, in 1716, Spain established the first series of missions in the area, but it was quickly abandoned due to fear of an attack by the French. It was refounded in 1721, and documentation from that time indicates that the tribe had approximately 390 members. During the 1760s, following the French and Indian War, the French had vacated the area, and Spanish officials decided that maintaining the missions was too costly. But by then, the Asinai population, plagued by warfare and diseases from the Old World, had been greatly reduced, and the Nacogdoches began to fade away. A census taken in 1790 reported that the population had been reduced to only about 65 men and women and around 50 children. Many of the Nacogdoches were forced to go elsewhere and become members of other Asinai or Caddo tribes. The remainders would simply be absorbed by the population of the Spanish settlement that would arrive in 1779. In the spring of that year, a prominent Spanish trader by the name of Antonio Gil Ibarro returned to the area with a group of settlers. Later that summer, Nacogdoches would receive official designation from Spain as a pueblo, or town, thereby making it the first and the oldest town in Texas, a title the town proudly boasts to this day. Of course, present-day Nacogdoches has more to boast than just its age. Over time, the little Pueblo worked its way up to a bustling little university town. And it's full of historical markers and memorabilia and what we call old money. It's a town rich with history and the formation of the Republic and subsequently the state of Texas. Too much to cover in one episode, perhaps. Instead, we'll focus on the night of March 11, 2009 when one family almost added to that history and two members of the same family were victims of two separate crimes at two different locations at the same time. Or were they? I'm Krista, and you're listening to Episode 9 of Lone Star Law and Disorder. March 11, 2009, was the Wednesday before spring break. Other than the massive thunderstorm raging through the area, it was really just like any other Wednesday night. Melissa would be working at the hospital until around 5 and had arranged for the girls to get a ride from the school to church where they could spend some time in the evening with their father. But with the weather being so bad, about half of the congregation didn't make it to services that night. That included Kyle Barnhill. So when services ended early that night, Assistant Pastor Tom Brainerd called Melissa to let her know that he would bring the girls home, 
since he only lived next door. He met Melissa at the house at about 8.25 and then headed for home only a few minutes later. At about 9 o'clock, Tom went into his daughter's room to say the nightly prayer with his children. He tucked his children into bed and sat down in the living room to go through some emails. At about 10 after 9, Tom heard an explosion from outside. He immediately thought it might have been a transformer, but it quickly occurred to him that his lights were still on. Not knowing what it could have been, and knowing that Melissa and the girls were at home, he ran to his kitchen to grab his flashlight. He left his house, heading towards Melissa's. As he neared the house, he watched as the garage door opened, and Kyla Barnhill came running, screaming that her mother had been hurt. Tom ran into the kitchen and immediately called 911. He hurried the girls out of the house, and waited for the police to arrive. After police arrived, Tom took the girls to his house. He put them in an interior room with no windows and turned off all the other lights in and around the house. At approximately 9.15 p.m., Sergeant Mac McKee and Officer Nick Stewart were off duty. I'm Nick Stewart, police officer, Nagadotes Police Department. I uh, currently work as a sergeant in our street crimes unit. Okay, I'm Mac, M-A-C-K McKee. I've been a police officer for the city of Nacogdoches for 23 years. I am currently a patrol sergeant. So we, we were working extra jobs that night, and we have a take-home car program here in Nacogdoches. So Mac had a take-home car. I didn't, so he had picked me up that night. It was our off-duty day to work security. That was our normal day for us to work um, in a housing complex. So th- this was common for me to go get him and for us to go work um, extra jobs. We turned the in-car computer on to find out that uh, that the shift was already working a murder, which isn't very common at Nacogdoches. So when we logged on, we saw that, and it had already been probably going on. I don't know how long it had been going on. It was long enough that, that we were interested and we drove to Medical Center Hospital just to see what exactly what was going on because of what we were reading on the car computer. And it was when we actually arrived at Medical Center and we were getting out of our cars when the call came out. When they overheard in the radio traffic a call from dispatch in reference to shots fired at 3415 Kings Row. If you're working an extra job, you, you just kind of start shagging calls for patrol to help them out. So the way the way it came out was a gunshots heard call. And typically we don't get extremely excited about that, especially here in East Texas. You know, gunshots are just common. But the neighborhood that it was in is what actually uh, is is what actually made us uh, a little bit more hyped about what was going on. Um, it was in a, an area of town that's not necessarily bordered by any pasture land or, or rural areas. Kings Row Road is a relatively quiet residential subdivision near the outer edges of town. It's one of those nice middle-class neighborhoods, 
occupied by brick homes with big manicured yards. Charming, really. More, more, we're more curious than anything else. Sergeant McKee asked if their assistance was needed, and he was advised that it would be. I can remember we wound up responding uh, with a detective, and I think a constable were in front of us as we were going to the scene. I can specifically remember us driving as we would normally drive to a gunshots call, but en route, uh, while we were on our way to the call, uh, the reports came in of there's a person that's been hit. McKee picked up the pace. So I remember, but remember speeding up a little bit, and then the, the, the reports came in as more detailed that the person had blood coming out of them. They were laid on the floor and not responding. And about that point's when we figured out it wasn't just a typical gunshot call. And when we went into the neighborhood, um, the two lead cars, it, it's a neighborhood we don't normally go to. Not very many people are familiar with the streets. I happen to be familiar with the streets because I was looking for a house. So I actually knew where the street was. So we we were the third car, and it actually wound up being the first officers on scene because they they went they went the wrong way. Or they, they, they kept going straight down the street instead of turning down the main road. Which, which I'm not saying that they didn't know where they're going or whatever, but it's, an, it's a neighborhood that I only knew the street because I was looking for a house. He stopped the vehicle just short of the address. We stopped our car uh, way short of the house. You don't really know what's going on. You don't want to drive right in the middle of anything. So we stopped real short and we actually run up to the house from, from down the road. People were outside pointing to the house where we needed to go. I can remember people directing us the house and we were running up as they ran towards the residence they observed a man on his cell phone with two young children standing next to him the thing i I remember clearly like it was yesterday was there was an adult male in the driveway holding a uh a a cordless phone or a cell phone he was in complete shock uh we were the responding officers but he was trying to get us to talk to the officers on the phone talk to dispatch so um at that point I could tell clearly he was in complete shock. So he actually was trying to hand the phone to me when we first came up. The man was obviously in distress and kept saying, she's in there. And I remember telling him, I need to go find out who this guy is. And I didn't take the phone and we went inside the house. Both of us did. When we both saw that, I wanted to go out. And that's when I went back out and talked to uh, uh, talked to the man in the And the children, well, those children are something that Sergeant McKee will never forget. That's when I actually knelt down and I got to see the girls covered in blood. That's I I remember that very clearly. The oldest girl had blood smears on her cheek and blood on her hands. They just kept saying that their mother was hurt and needed help. And one of the girls was telling me, go help her mom. And my, my kids are not that much older than they are. So I kind of have a tough time talking about that. Inside the home, they observed a white female wearing brown scrubs lying on her back, arms outstretched beside her, her eyes fixed in a gaze into seemingly nowhere. When I went in, I could tell, I could see a lady lay on the floor and something about uh, when you look at a, a body and you can tell when somebody's you know, passed away. And we first entered, it's pretty apparent that she, she had uh, survived.
Minutes later, Detective Ball arrived on scene to assist. The residence had already been cleared by responding officers. He was summoned outside to speak to the 911 caller, Tom Brainerd, who advised that the deceased female was Melissa Barnhill, and he had her two small children at his house. Mr. Brainerd informed Detective Ball that he was the assistant pastor at Melissa's church, and the girls were familiar with him and his family, and were being cared for by his teenage children at the moment. He also advised that Melissa was involved in a volatile divorce. Detective Ball spoke with the oldest child, Kyla, first. Kyla heard a loud noise, followed by what she thought was breaking glass. Then she heard her mother make a gasping sound. It was when three-year-old Karis came running from the kitchen yelling for her that Kyla got up to see what had caused all the commotion. She ran into the kitchen. There, she saw her mother lying on the floor with blood running out of her neck. She grabbed a kitchen towel and placed the towel over her mother's neck, trying to stop the bleeding. She then grabbed the phone and tried to call the only number she thought she knew, the school secretary, but she misdialed. When applying pressure didn't work and the phone didn't work, Kyla began to scream. He observed Kyla's clothes to be splotched with blood. She had no shoes on with socks that were stained with blood. After speaking with Kyla about what she had seen and heard, Detective Ball put out a bolo for Kyle Edwin Barnhill. While on the scene speaking to his officers, Assistant Chief Vince Griffin of Nacogdoches PD observed a man wearing a clergy collar walking up to the scene. Pastor Randy Booth advised officers that he'd been appointed by the court to supervise any visitation between Kyle and his children. He advised that Kyle had just been served his official divorce papers that morning, but that he'd seemed to do okay with it. He was initially going to visit with the children that evening at church, but he later called to say he'd be busy, cleaning up at the Zesty Burger. With concern that Barnhill might pose a threat to the children, as well as several others including himself, Assistant Chief Griffin left the scene to search for Kyle. Dispatch had put out a description of a possible suspect vehicle, a blue 2000 Dodge pickup truck. He first drove north past the front of the Zesty Burger. There were no cars out front, but all of the lights were on inside as if someone was there. When Griffin didn't see anybody out front, he turned east and pulled into the parking lot of some nearby apartments in order to get a better look at the back of the business. He walked along the wooden privacy fence that ran between the apartments and the Zesty Burger until he could see the back of the building. By now, it was about 10.15. Behind the Zesty Burger, he could see a dark-colored pickup truck matching the description put out by dispatch. But the truck had no license plates. As he moved a little closer, he could see that it was a Dodge. It was at this point that Griffin saw the back door of the business come open. But nobody went in and nobody came out. Assistant Chief Griffin called for backup. He continued to watch the building while he waited for others to arrive, and it wasn't long until they did. Griffin and the other officers carefully approached the building, being careful not to be seen by whoever was inside. As they approached, they began to hear noises coming from inside. Loud banging noises, followed by what sounded like a pocket full of change being dropped on the floor. Through a window, they observed a white male stand up from the floor of the southwest corner 
and head toward the door. They quickly met the man at the exit and ordered him to the ground. The man was obviously startled by the police presence and didn't immediately cooperate. He initially resisted and had to be forced to the ground. Officers were able to positively identify him as Kyle Barnhill. He was wearing a light gray-colored t-shirt, jeans, and white socks. His knees were wet and dirty. His black slip-on shoes were next to his truck, and his socks were turned inside out. He had a visible bleeding gash on the top of his head and fresh scratches all over his face and arms, along with blood on his hands. Barnhill began asking what all the commotion was about. He'd just been robbed by some guys and called 911, and he'd been waiting for the police to get there. What took them so long, and why was he the one in handcuffs? Two black guys had come running up out of nowhere. They'd broken out the back window of his truck and stolen two money bags. Officers did observe the back window of his truck to be broken out. They observed some glass on the inside of the truck, mainly on the driver's side, as well as a little bit in the bed of the truck. But they also observed there to be only one small piece of glass on the pavement under the truck. Because there was a two-inch gap between the cab and the bed of the truck, at least some of the glass should have fallen directly onto the pavement below the truck, which suggested to them that the window hadn't been broken out there, but at a different location. And it was later determined that Barnhill did, in fact, call 911. But he never said anything to the dispatcher. The recording consisted mainly of background noise and large banging sounds. It was also determined the dispatch made a return call to Kyle's phone once it hung up, and the call went straight to his voicemail. Kyle Barnhill was taken in for questioning and his truck towed to CID for further evidence. At about 9.35 p.m. on Wednesday, March 11th, Detective Troy Mock of Nacogdoches PD got a phone call. He was needed on the job because there'd been not one shooting that night, but two. As he headed into town, he listened to the radio chatter, which told him that Assistant Chief Griffin was nearing the Zesty Burger. At that time, he still had no information as to what had happened. He was instructed to report to 3415 King's Row, where he met with Detective Ball inside the house. He gave the kitchen an initial once-over where he observed Melissa Barnhill, still dressed in brown medical scrubs, lying on the floor in a large pool of blood. Detective Mock then began a closer observation of the scene. He noted that hair and biological matter appeared to have been projected out from the trauma in her neck into the two rooms that were adjoined to the kitchen. It appeared that the projectile had entered through the left side of her neck and exited through the right, continuing through the door of the side-by-side refrigerator and exiting through the side, next entering through the metal oven door and lodging itself inside. As the other detectives on scene discussed various scenarios, such as the killer standing to the victim's left side between the victim and the sink when they shot, Detective Mott continued a quiet examination of the scene. He scanned over the kitchen, walking over to the refrigerator, then turning north toward the kitchen window. As he faced the window, he noticed that the window pane was broken. As he looked more closely, he observed a small hole in the screen on the outside of the window. Calling the other detective's attention to it, he pointed out that it would be consistent with a shot being fired from outside the home. Detective Mock had been involved in hunting for a big part of his life. He'd worked with guns, and he'd been to crime scene school. 
Based on his experience and the logistics of the scene, Detective Mock suspected that this was the work of a high-caliber rifle. Another detective arrived shortly after, bringing a laser pointer with him, which he attached to a connecting rod. They ran the rods from outside of the hole in the screen to the hole in the refrigerator and then turned on the laser. Detective Mock could see the general area that the laser was pointing to and made a mental note to himself of the area. Just through the backyard, northwest of the residence, was a church. Detectives ventured out into the backyard to continue the investigation. But due to the raging storm that night, it was too dark. So dark that the investigation would have to wait until daylight. The interview lasted for hours. NPD Sergeant Scott Weems advised Kyle of his rights and informed him that he was technically in custody since he was handcuffed at the scene. Kyle said he understood and agreed to talk, depending on what they were going to talk about. He was anxious to talk about the robbery. So, Sergeant Weems started off by asking him simply, what happened? Kyle then proceeded to tell Sergeant Weems a very different story of what had happened at the Zesty Burger that night than the one he'd told officers at the scene. Kyle said he'd run a few errands that evening and went back to the Zesty Burger after the staff closed up. The girls there handed him the keys and went home for the night. He sent a few text messages and made a few phone calls. He was going to go work out at the gym, but when he got there, he just didn't feel like it. Kyle had gone back to the Zesty Burger and he'd been inside the restaurant cleaning up when a Hispanic guy had approached the drive through window inquiring about a job. Kyle told the guy to meet him around the back, and when he opened the door, the guy attacked him. Kyle continued describing how he'd basically had to fight for his life because the Hispanic male was armed with a knife. The guy eventually got him down to the ground and started beating him, demanding money. Kyle eventually gave in when the guy threatened to beat him to death and told him he'd already put all the money in his truck. The guy must have knocked him out at this point, because the next thing he knew, he was waking up. And he must have been out for a while, because when he came to, his truck window was busted out and the guy was gone. Kyle said he was heading outside to see if the guy had taken all the money, and that's when he encountered the officers that had brought him in. At that point in the interview, Kyle told detectives that he wanted to ask the questions now. Why was he handcuffed? Sergeant Weems informed him of the call to Melissa's house for shots fired earlier that night. Kyle responded by talking about himself. He began rambling about his relationship with Melissa, how it had been a tough divorce, and how he'd done stupid things in the past and been angry and upset. But he was trying to get over that, though, through church and his pastor, and he'd been doing a lot better lately. It wasn't until after Kyle had his say that he asked about what had happened and if anybody had been hurt. The conversation continued on this way for a while, going back and forth between asking about Melissa's situation and defending his story about the alleged robbery. Kyle tried to explain the scratches away by saying that the robber must have pulled the wrong blade, like accidentally pulled the fingernail file blade instead that's hooked at the end. That's why he wasn't able to cut Kyle as deep. He'd had to crawl on his knees and he thought he remembered that there was some water there that he crawled through. That's why his knees got wet and dirty. Detectives asked Kyle to turn his socks right side in, which revealed mud on the bottom of his socks. 
Without a good explanation for this one, Kyle got defensive and refused to answer. Detectives began to present Kyle with all of the discrepancies in his story, including the fact that officers who were watching the Zesty Burger had heard him and seen him, and their version of events wasn't at all consistent with his. Sergeant Weems then informed Kyle that his wife had been shot that night. Shot? Kyle just repeated it, like it was a question. Maybe this was the moment when it hit him, when it really sunk in. Nope. He went right back to talking about the alleged robbery almost immediately. He never even asked if his wife was injured or dead. At least not until Sergeant Weems brought it up again. After Kyle rambled on for a while longer, at about 12.50 a.m., Sergeant Weems came right out and asked him, What about your wife? Detectives told Kyle that Melissa was dead. Kyle lowered his head and covered his face with his hand. He said, I didn't love her enough to kill her, and I didn't hate her enough to kill her. Barnhill asked if the children were home when it happened. Detectives told him that they were, to which he stated he was sorry. He then quickly corrected himself by saying that he was sorry for his kids and that they no longer had a mother. He'd been angry at Melissa for sure. He'd sent her text messages threatening that she would regret it if she didn't withdraw the divorce. But he'd been doing better lately. And besides, he would never want anything to happen to Melissa because then he'd be the suspect. Detectives informed him that he was, in fact, the prime suspect, to which he responded, I'm sure I am. At approximately 2.09 a.m., Kyle Barnhill decided it was time for an attorney. Without anything definitive linking him to the murder, detectives had to let him go. Detective Mock and Detective Ball returned to the station at around 3.45 a.m. By then, Kyle Barnhill had asked for an attorney and was waiting for his ride. As Detective Mock walked through the offices, he observed Kyle standing in the middle of the CID room. As he walked by, Kyle Barnhill looked at Detective Mock and smiled. By 6.10 a.m., it still wasn't quite light enough outside to see well, so Detective Mock began looking at the evidence that he could see. He snapped on some latex gloves and started searching through evidence that had been bagged and boxed and brought into the station. By about 8 a.m., it was time to take a look at Kyle Barnhill's truck, which had been towed to the station shortly after he was brought in for questioning. He started on the driver's side, searching for any kind of evidence that might support Kyle's claim of robbery. He briefly looked around the driver's area and behind the seat. The main thing that stood out was that the entire back window of the truck was broken out, and some of the glass was inside the truck, while some was outside the truck in the bed area. Detective Mock peered between the cab and the bed of the truck and noted glass there as well. What that told Detective Mock was that there should be a large amount of shattered glass somewhere, and it wasn't at the Zesty Burger. Detective Mock walked around to the passenger side of the truck and opened the door. On the floorboard, between the seat and the door, he observed a brown cotton work glove. He searched around for the match, but he couldn't find one. He did, however, find a white latex glove behind the passenger seat against the back of the cab. It wasn't until later that he would find out about the brown glove that had been recovered from the church parking lot. 
Coincidentally, or perhaps not, both gloves appeared to be the same style and color and contained the same red threads. Also noteworthy was a copy of the Peddler, which is basically East Texas's classifieds paper. It was folded up and didn't immediately suggest anything sinister or send up any red flags. But when he took a closer look, Detective Monk noticed an address written down with the name Melissa Barnhill next to it. And there was another address written down as well, right next to an ad that had been circled. An ad for a gun for sale. But not just any gun. A six-foot-long Russian-made bolt-action rifle complete with a two-foot bayonet. Detective Mock returned to 3415 King's Row a little later that morning to examine the scene in the backyard a little more closely now that it was daylight. He walked to the area where the laser pointer had indicated the night before. What he noted first was the big bushy tree growing up out of the ground in a V-shape. He followed the chain-link fence at the back of the yard to the west and noted a wooded area, thick with vines, about as thick as sticks, covered in big thorns. Looking through the briary patch of woods, he could see the backside of the church and its parking lot. Now this was all significant to Detective Mock, because during his conversation with Sergeant Weems, Weems had informed him that Kyle Barnhill had fresh scratch marks on his arms, legs, upper body, and face that weren't consistent with his explanation that he'd fought off a knife-wielding attacker. In fact, they were similar to what one might expect to get from running through a briar patch. After canvassing the neighborhood, officers were able to make contact with a neighbor by the name of Deborah LeBlanc. Miss LeBlanc's property bordered the church parking lot and Melissa Barnhill's backyard. At less than five minutes until nine, Miss LeBlanc had been sitting at her computer talking on the phone when she heard a loud bang that sounded so close and carried so much force that it shook some of the pictures on her walls. Startled by the sound, she took a second to process and then got up and hurried to her window, which faces west towards the church. Just as she looked out, she saw a white male wearing a gray or light-colored sweatshirt running very fast from the southern woodline that borders Melissa's backyard. He ran north across the grassy area at the rear of the church's property and then disappeared into the northern woodline. After about 20 to 30 seconds, LeBlanc began to wonder what he could be doing in there. Just as she began to wonder, he re-emerged and sprinted to the only vehicle parked in the church parking lot, an older model Dodge pickup. Coincidentally, or once again perhaps not, the truck was parked facing the church in the parking spot where the brown glove would later be found. She watched as the man got into the driver's side of the truck and sped away down Appleby Sands Road. With all of the evidence building against him, a warrant was issued for Kyle Barnhill's arrest. But Kyle was nowhere to be found. They found him through an email that he sent one of his grown daughters from a previous marriage. Detectives were able to trace the IP address to a computer located in the public library in Eagle Pass, Texas, which is directly attached to the border. Kyle was going to make a run for it. 
but Kyle wouldn't make it. You see, prior to all of this, Kyle had gotten a DWI, and as a result, his driver's license had been suspended. He couldn't get across the border because he didn't have an ID. Texas Rangers arrested Kyle in Eagle Pass on March 16, 2009, and he was transported back to Nacogdoches, where he would sit in the county jail until his trial. While detectives continued on with their investigation, there he sat. On March 19th, at around 7.20 p.m., Detective Troy Mock received word that NPD had responded to a call of a firearm discovered in Lanana Creek on North University Drive. Some children had been playing along the creek and came upon a long wooden rifle. But not just any wooden rifle. A six-foot-long Russian-made bolt-action rifle complete with a two-foot bayonet. It didn't appear to have been there for very long. Their father carefully popped out the spent shell case from the chamber and the three remaining live rounds from the magazine and quickly called the police. In a parking lot near where the gun had been found, detectives also spotted a large patch of broken glass on the ground behind a local store. When questioned, the store owner informed them that the glass had been there since the morning after the murder, and she had no idea where it came from. When she left work for the evening on the night of the murder, it wasn't there. But when she'd come back the next morning, there it was. She noticed it so easily, because it was in the parking spot that she used every day. On Monday, March 30th, at about 4.30 p.m., Detective Mock drove to the church on Appleby Sands Road, just behind the home where Melissa Barnhill had once lived. As he sat there, he thought about what route Kyle Barnhill would have taken for a quick getaway to the Zesty Burger. He chose his route, from the rear of the parking lot to Appleby Sands Road, north on Appleby Sands to Moroni Drive, west onto Moroni to North University Drive, then left into the parking lot where the glass and the gun had been found. It took four minutes and three seconds to drive the 2.1 miles from point A to point B. It was approximately four minutes before the first officers arrived at Melissa's house after the 911 call, giving Kyle plenty of time to get back to the Zesty Burger. All of the little pieces were falling right into place, and that's exactly what prosecutors would need if Kyle was going to be sticking to his story. But in a surprising turn of events, Kyle Barnhill confessed. And he did it voluntarily. While sitting in jail awaiting his trial, Kyle contacted the local media station, KTRE, and requested an interview. During that interview, the reporter asked Kyle straight up if he had killed his wife. Kyle responded, Yes, I did. But when she asked him what was going through his mind when he pulled the trigger, Kyle just couldn't recall that. Kyle insisted that he was not in his right mind at the time, and his mental state was not so good now. The insanity defense would be totally applicable at his trial. When she asked him why he'd chosen KTRE to confess, Kyle said that there were some things in the press that just weren't true, and he'd wanted to tell his side of the story. Kyle's attorney was furious. He issued a statement stating that he was shocked and disgusted that KTRE never attempted to contact him prior to conducting the interview. He said that it was very obvious that Kyle Barnhill was suffering from a mental illness and implied that KTRE had taken advantage of the situation. But as it turns out, that insanity defense wasn't so applicable after all.
During his arraignment hearing, in response to the charges of first-degree murder read against him, and the judge's question of how do you plea, Kyle pleaded not guilty by reason of insanity. To his surprise, District Judge Ed Klein accepted Kyle's plea of not guilty and documented it as such. But he rejected the insanity portion. May I ask why? Kyle asked in response to the judge's decision. A simple no would be the only answer he would get from Judge Klein. During the fourth day of testimony, after the prosecution rested their case, Kyle took the stand. Against his attorney's insistence that he remain silent, he felt that if people knew the whole story, in hindsight, things would be explained much better. He spent around 45 minutes on the stand, during which his lawyer allowed him a lengthy explanation of his circumstances leading up to the murder. He accused Melissa of having multiple affairs and being treated poorly by her attorney through the divorce proceedings. Many of the church members had rallied around Melissa without knowing the whole story. After the lunch break, he took the stand for another 40 minutes while the prosecution cross-examined him. He admitted to killing Melissa. He admitted to threatening her during the divorce process. He said that when he received the notice of the final divorce proceeding on the day of March 11th, he quickly left work and drove to Bullard. He remembered buying the rifle, and he remembered driving back from Bullard, but he had no actual memory of raising the rifle, aiming it, and pulling the trigger, or of returning to his vehicle to make his getaway. After four days of testimony, a jury of four women and eight men took only about 20 minutes to deliver their verdict. Kyle was found guilty as charged of first-degree murder and was eligible for up to 99 years in prison. During the sentencing phase that carried over into the next day, Kyle's defense attorney would present mitigating circumstances, claiming that Kyle had acted out of sudden passion. His attorney argued that it was an emotional act, not a logical one. In his closing argument, he had pointed out all the circumstances that had led up to the fatal shooting of Melissa Barnhill. Bankruptcy, being kicked out of his home, the loss of time with his daughters. The defense told the story of a man who was anything but whole and who had suffered and been pushed to the breaking point. When he received those final divorce papers, he snapped. But the jury didn't buy Kyle's story. And neither do I. Not one bit. Kyle Barnhill, you've had your chance to tell your side of the story. Now it's my turn to tell Melissa's. Next time on Lone Star Law and Disorder. <laughs> <laughs>